Dear Lord God, we're grateful. We're grateful for the time in your word. We're grateful for the company of the saints. We're grateful for the minds you gave us, our diligence in using them. We'd ask that we would not be hearers only, but doers, that we'd be out in our lives applying what we hear. In your son's name, amen. We are in Romans chapter 10. We came through Romans chapter 9 unscathed. We came through with a sense of victory. A sense of, uh, hey, it wasn't that bad. Romans 9. So now we're on to Romans 10. And Romans 10 is a, oh, it's a wonderful passage. It's, it's almost the passage that I would say should describe us as a fellowship of believers. It's so clear. It's so direct uh, about the nature of Christianity and what we at All Souls um, reference ourselves as. Uh, that we are mere Christians. That we are people that have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now St. Paul has come through Romans 9, and the whole question for him in this whole book has been sin, faith, how does this affect the Jew-Gentile relationship? How come the Jews are getting upset at the uh, inclusion of the Gentiles in faith? And, and Paul has recognized in chapter 9, he started, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He cares for the Jews. He wants them to be saved. And he comes to the end of chapter 9, and he lets them know that the election of the Gentiles, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the elect status of Christ, is because of their faith. And that the Jews did not, because they stumbled over the law, and they stumbled over the stumbling block of Christ, they, they couldn't see faith as a means of salvation, a means of life in Christ. The big distinction in Romans 9 was between mercy and justice. God will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. And mercy has nothing to do with what you are. Justice has everything to do with what you are. And most people's religions like to be justice-oriented. I want to be a good person so God will like me and take me to the good place, nirvana, heaven, whatever. Rather than going the other direction saying, no, I am a bad man, I am a bad woman, and it's not a matter of justice. God save me from justice. So mercy over justice. Now, if, when we get to that point with Paul's handling of the Jew-Gentile problem and the whole nature of why there's a Jew-Gentile problem, We know there was one, and the why of it is faith itself. This was news. This is not, we've got 500 years since the Reformation, where faith versus works was argued. We've got, and then another 1,500 years before that, of Christianity uh, speaking of the faith. We even call it the faith. We're used to that. For this world, Paul is talking about, in his day, something very strange. Very different. Something that he has to announce and sustain. The nature of faith. And that's how, since that's how he ends chapter 9, 
And he has said, we've got vessels of wrath that God is patient and merciful with. He continues that note with verse 1 of chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. If ever you were wondering or thought that the vessels of wrath in chapter 9 were permanently vessels of wrath, Paul doesn't seem to think that they're damned eternally, decreed to be damned eternally. They are currently damned eternally. And his prayer and desire is that they may be saved. So he ends up talking over the next two chapters, 10 and 11, about his working toward the Jews who have rejected Christ to bring them to salvation, to turn them from vessels of wrath to vessels of mercy. And you're going to see that all over the landscape. Now, there's some wonderful passages here in Romans 10, some very quotable verses that would deal with us in evangelism, deal with us in a lot of different things. But remember that Paul is addressing the reaction of the Jews to the gospel. And in the announcement of the Jews to the Jews of the gospel to the Gentiles, we as Gentiles learn a lot more about the nature of the gospel. But he's answering a basic problem in Judaism. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. Now, in many circles, Judaism sort of gets almost equal status in Christian circles with Christianity. Jews are not saved. And we go, but God loves them. Well, yeah. They're the chosen people. Yeah. They have a zeal for God. These are people, you listen to Dr. Laura on the radio, most of the time you just want to smack her. You know, but a lot of times she says a lot of things that Christians agree with, or you, you listen to Michael Medved, you know, you ever hear various Jews say a lot of good things. And we go, ooh, family values, aren't they, don't you get saved by family values? Having strong views about bad movies? Uh, what are you, Christians, or are you some sort of, you know, fraternal order, people want to promote, uh, you know, good thought in our, in our world? No, we're Christians. And Jews are not. They have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That's enlightenment. Are you enlightened, first off? I was on a plane once, uh, flying someplace. Not just sitting on a plane for entertainment. I was going someplace and uh, looked across the aisle and some guy was reading a little thin, thin paperback called The Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment. You know, because so often you, you get out there and you start reading the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance or the, the Book of the Five Rings or something. You know, you start uh, feeling, hey, this enlightenment stuff, it's a lot of work. Well, here we are just told that the Jews have a zeal for God, not enlightened, and then it tells us what enlightenment is, accepting the righteousness that is from God, not the righteousness that is from you. Basic distinction, 
between Christianity and every other religion. And it's a basic distinction between only a small part of Christianity, that which claims Jesus Christ, and the rest of everything. Because an awful lot of Christianity still believes that it's by what rules you keep. I told you that story many times before about when my dad worked at Concordia Lutheran in Ann Arbor. And uh, asked these kids whether they were, uh, you probably saw this in his email recently, um, what, the, what the nature of the gospel was. And they could give the catechism answer like that. And then he said, well, if you died right now, where would you go? He said, I don't know. Well, why don't you know? Well, I don't know how good you have to be to go to heaven. After they had just stated you are saved by grace through faith. People naturally, when they're blind, when they're ignorant, when they refuse to be enlightened by the fact that you have to get your righteousness from God. Remember, earlier in this book, Paul consigned all men to sin. Now, I believe that if you were sinlessly perfect from the time you were born, you would go to heaven. Okay? Anybody there yet? Anybody have gotten to that? You know, I'd be pretty impressed with you in your mid-20s, 30s, 40s, and not sinned yet. But if you hadn't sinned, completed the law, you would go to heaven. But there's that verse, all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all heard that verse earlier in this book. We've consigned to sin. So the problem is not, when I say, well, I believe in being righteous, being good. I believe in being righteous or being good. When we tell non-Christians, what we should continue to tell ourselves, you can't be good enough. You can't be good enough for salvation. You cannot be good enough for life. If you're enlightened, you realize that your righteousness is God's righteousness. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law, that everyone who has faith may be justified. Now this is Paul's banner in his life, in his ministry. If he has something that he will fall on his sword over, it's this. Because it's by grace through faith, it is by grace, through faith, for everyone who believes. That's why the gospel is to the Jew and the Gentile. Because it's by grace, through faith. If it were by keeping the law, it would be by those who knew and were taught the law. Who had access to the priesthood. Who had access to the temple. Who could make the sacrifices correctly. So Paul has this view that the reason the law has gone away is it didn't succeed in what it stated. It did not produce righteousness. It only increased the trespass. And secondly, as faith came, the law was only Jewish. Grace and mercy and faith were for all men everywhere. And Christ, by becoming the object of faith by which we are saved opened up by necessity the ministry to the Gentiles. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by it. Now that was referred to earlier in Romans, and it was from Leviticus 18. I have it quoted here. You shall therefore keep my statutes 
and my ordinances by doing which a man shall live, I am the Lord. You want to keep the law? In James, we learned in Bible study that if you violate one point of the law, you have violated the whole law. Because law is not measured out to you uh, like um, um, a series of uh, tests. You know, you guys have taken tests before in college, right? And there's a hundred points and there's a hundred questions and you zing through the test and you get 90 of them right out of a hundred and you're pretty pleased with yourself. The law is not a test. The law is your submission to the lawgiver. So, you can't tell your wife, honey, I think we have a good marriage. I think we have an A, a good A-level marriage. Might be an A-minus marriage because really I've only slept around uh, 10% of the time. But that's an A. That's still an A, right? Wasn't it? I slept around 10%. But honey, I've been home 90% of the time. Faithful to my vows 90% of the time. Oh, so the law... No one feels reassured by that, even if you popped it up to 95%, even 99%. Just once in 10 years. What do you want? I'm an A-plus husband. That's the law, because it's not a matter of how many you kept out of how many there are. And you're not graded by getting a majority of them above 60%. Well, I'm a passing student. That's not the law, because the law is the relationship to the lawgiver. It is the measure of what he wants and how you think of what he wants. Ask any civil law problem, you know. uh, You don't tell the police officer, well, most of this road, I was driving the speed limit. And if I could prove that I was driving the speed limit 60% of the time, could I not get the ticket because I passed? You broke the law. You disrespected the law. Well, guess what? Moses writes, you could live. You could live by the law. Moses writes, the man who practices righteousness which is based on the law shall live by it. (coughs) But, verse 6, the righteousness based on faith says. Okay, he's distinguishing a righteousness based by the law, and you could live by that, or... The life, the righteousness based on faith says, and this gets a little confusing because he says, it says, do not say this, okay? It says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. It seems that these are cliches, like who could go to heaven? Don't say these things of who can reach to these places, who can go to these places. Because if I say I am denying the ascension of Christ, I'm denying the atonement of Christ. As to bring, if I say who could go to hell, well, Christ went to hell, died and went to hell. 
Who could ascend into heaven? Well, Christ ascended into heaven. I need to not say things that are denials of the faith. But what does it say? Verse 8. The word is near you, on your lips, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Is it? Is the... If I said... If someone said, what's the gospel? It's the word that is in your heart. Look around and, well, I haven't studied theology. Well, we're not studying theology. You either believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and look what it says. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, that. The gospel. The good news. That's what the righteousness that is based on faith does say. The righteousness that is based on the law says, do this, keep the Ten Commandments, keep not just the Ten Commandments, keep all of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, parts of Exodus. And you will live. I will not hurt you. But which do you need? Did you already flunk that exam? Are you already the husband that uh, found out that she really didn't understand the curve? Even if you were willing to grade on a strict percentage thing that you're a husband. Did you just find out that with God, you failed? Earlier in this book, it let us know that all of us are consigned to sin. We don't need to know if the law, if kept perfectly, could help us live because we didn't do it. You have to choose whether or not you're going to live by the law or be saved by grace because you're an idiot if you think you could be live by the law. The Jews, right? Is it, what did it say? Seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. People who believe they can keep the law. Now, it's a great statement of our salvation. Look what it contains. Confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. Okay, salvation. It involves heart belief, verbal confession. No, I am not the kind of person that believes that, um, that unless you walk the aisle or unless you stand up and say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, some sort of moment liturgically. But I would say that you don't believe if you don't say If you can't say that Jesus is Lord, when it says in 1 John, no one says except by the Spirit of God that Jesus is Lord. Now, we're not talking about whether he's Lord of your life. You know that phrase? I've made, have I made Jesus Lord of my life? That's a good idea to be talking about, but that's not what we're talking about here. When I say Jesus is Lord, in this context, I am saying Jesus is God. 
Jesus is God. And I believe that God raised him from the dead. You say, Evan, what, on what authority are you saying it means God? For a man believes with his heart and so is justified and confesses with his lips and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and bestows his riches upon all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That quote is out of Joel. I have it over on the side here. Joel 2.28. And it shall come to pass. Uh, Interesting. He is pulling the passage out of the one that was quoted at Pentecost by Peter. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even upon the men servants and maid servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will give portents in the heavens and of the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Now you notice uh, that in that text, the word Lord is capitalized. That means that in the Hebrew, that was the name of Yahweh. Whenever they translate the name Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, they translate it with all caps for Lord. They don't say, like King James might say, Jehovah. But Yahweh, the name of God. And St. Paul says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. After he says, you must confess Jesus as Lord. Not Jesus as a good prophet, not as a good man, not as a God, not as the Son of God but as God. And you must believe that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. Now when it says in verse 10, for a man who believes in his heart and so is justified, he confesses with his lips and so is saved, it's not talking about two distinct things that if I, be- if I confess, you know, what is it? I believe and I get justification and then I confess and I get saved. So a man could be, if he could believe but hadn't said yet, he's only justified, then he gets saved when he makes a public confession. Now, I don't think he's breaking it apart into two events because he already said in a reverse order, if you confess with your lips and believe, you will be saved. These are the kinds of things that, that I can distinguish Belief in the heart and verbal expression, but I can't separate them if I have belief in the heart. When our children were young and they wanted to become Christians, um, some of them would say, Father, you pray for me. I'd say, nope. We'll talk again when you want to pray. When you want to call on the name of the Lord, we'll pray. Too many times, people who want to get people saved want to pray along with me. I read one book on evangelism where you actually put your hand on the guy's shoulder and bowed your head because the psychological social pressure would cause the guy to bow his head and then you'd pray the prayer and then they'd be saved. That's a good trick. We get little trip wires in the aisle and they could fall on their face when they... Feed them a lot of coffee so they feel like they have to go to the bathroom. But the only way is down the aisle and then over to the bathroom. And then we could trip them and they would be on their knees in front of the altar. We could save them all sorts of good ways. But now, 
If you have real belief in your heart, you will confess with your lips. If you are ashamed of him before men, he will be ashamed of you before the Father. You didn't believe. Because it's a matter, remember, enlightenment is submitting yourself to God's righteousness. Because that is where righteousness comes from. Grace. Mercy. No one who believes in him will be put to shame. Look what that passage came out of. Isaiah 28, 16. It's right above the Joel passage. Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying, a stone, laying in Zion for a foundation stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. He who believes will not be in haste. Now, the Septuagint, which St. Paul is quoting of the Old Testament, has the word, uh, not, be put, not be ashamed. So the idea is the same, but it worded more closely. But it's all these passages out of Isaiah and other portions of the Old Testament that are referential to the coming of the Gospel. The Gentile mission. The coming of Christ. Paul is not just grabbing verses that sound good for his current moment. If I, I put you, pulled in some of the extra context to show you what's around this. What Paul is dealing with. No one who believes in him will put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is the Lord of all and bestows his riches upon all who call upon him. This is Paul's ground for the Gentile mission. The ground that says... Why would I think that the gospel would be limited in any sense to anyone? The nature of it is faith. Law was a barrier. Faith has no barrier. Because it's entirely on the part of the person who is supposed to believe. No one who believes will be put to shame. No one will be chased away. And when it says put to shame, it doesn't mean... Oops, embarrassed. Not that kind of shame. Rejected. No one will be rejected. Anyone who would like to say, such a kind of a man the Lord would not save. Paul argues throughout his whole life, I'm the chief of sinners. I persecuted the household of faith. He was the kind of Jew that he is hoping and praying that God will continue to save. Do not say that God did not die for some. The whole nature of the gospel, the whole nature of faith, is that it extends. It does not limit itself. Part of the joy of our Christianity is how we are given a gospel of peace that can go to all men. Part of this bestowing his riches upon all who call upon him, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then we, we immediately run into a little you know, practical theology problem. The practical theology problem of, well, here we are. I mean, it's nice to see all your freshly scrubbed Sabbath morning, day after Sabbath morning um, faces here, but there's about, oh, what's the general estimate? 50, 60 of you here, something like that, and town of 20,000. Where, where are the rest of them? 
Just not let them. Well, they don't believe. Well, some are in other churches, but maybe 10%. Maybe 2,000 people in this town of 20,000 know the Lord Jesus Christ, if that, and are attending services this morning. We automatically, we we, want to deal with somehow immediately why they don't believe. Why aren't they saved? Well, you could probably look back to your own lack of salvation at some point and go, why wasn't I saved when I wasn't saved? Well, I liked my sin. (laughs) That's one. But here it says, a little more optimistically, excuse me, but how are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. In other words, not only does the nature of faith and the righteousness coming from God out of just this claim of faith, doesn't, righteousness comes to you by this claim of faith, the grace of God poured out to you, no matter who you are, but it is so much your own, it is so much your autonomous will that hangs on to this decision that you will not call upon him by any other means than someone presenting Jesus Christ to you. This question is rhetorical. How are they to call upon him whom they've not believed? Well, they won't, will they? How are they to believe unless they hear? Well, they won't, will they? Because the nature of this message is that it is spread from man to man an announcement to another will. And your faith is going to either be made or unmade in that moment. That's why it is beautiful to be an evangelist. The passage that comes out of it, out of Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good tidings, who publishes peace, who brings good tidings of good, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Hark, your watchmen lift their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Paul is referring back to moments in the Old Testament which sees and understands the Gentiles being saved. It's all based on the fact that this righteousness from God is by faith, The rejection acceptance of the faith is on the part of the person who hears and rejects or doesn't hear and doesn't even have the opportunity. And consequently, we value those who preach the good news, who preach that God is a saving God. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has... So I get out there and I preach. I say something. I meet some friends. I get to know them. Finally have a chance to have a a, a witness, an evangelistic moment. And they go, no. What goes on in an individual who says no? 
is probably any number of things. But I can't change. I might like to believe something else, that, that God just didn't give them faith. I'm sorry, that's not how faith comes from God. You say, does, does faith come from God? Well, yes, but not that way. Not in some magic way that unless they're magically given faith, they won't believe. How do they get faith? Verse 17. So faith comes by what is heard, and what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. That's how faith comes from God. And if they reject it then, you have preached Christ, they heard it, and they were convicted of their sins, and they repented, called on the name of the Lord, confessed with their lips that Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. But there is, the man's spirit is the man's spirit. If they choose to be unenlightened, if they choose as Jews to go back to the law and say, no, 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 we like this set of rules better than your grace, that's up to them. They refuse to be enlightened. St. Paul's desire, his heart was for them. He had hopes for them. He prayed for them. God seemed to want them as well. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. Haven't they heard? No, everybody's heard. You say, what? hold it, what's he talking about there? Remember I mentioned last week, it's good to look up the passages quoted. This is out of Psalms. Did it get removed? Looks like I erased it. Yeah, it's out of Psalm 19. I did erase it. I had this. I was trying to clean up the number of passages. <laughs> clean that up. Psalm 19. Listen to what is actually said here. It echoes part of earlier part of Romans. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech nor are their words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. He's not referring to evangelism. He's referring to the declaration of nature that God is God. Because what did it tell you earlier in Romans? His infinite power and deity are clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Therefore, they're without excuse. Their disbelief, they have heard part of the message. Every man has heard part of the message. If they have any heart for God at all, they walk out that door and they cannot deny that there is a God and he is powerful. And then there's a series of choices they have to make. Again, I asked, did Israel not understand? They heard, but they didn't understand. First, Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Not only is faith the means of God's righteousness here to the Jews, and for us and our ministry to the lost, but it is an offer of faith. The man, the Jew, the person that I preach to, the issue of faith is an offer of, a, of, a, of an article of faith, the lordship of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, and life eternal. And it's an offer. 
that you hold out, like Christ, your hands to a disobedient and contrary people, and they will not. Most of them, because you know what that passage is, a broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are they that go therein, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and those that find it are few. Prepare yourself for that. But those that believe, those that we rejoice over that believe, those few that find, the God's offer is made. It is announced as a concrete thing to be heard, understood, and decided. And most will reject it. And for all sorts of reasons, they will not be enlightened. But those who want eternal life, those who want to be enlightened by the righteousness that comes from God, will believe. There'll be great rejoicing over that. But Paul is going on, and we're going to get into this in chapter 11 next week, God willing, um, on his hopes for the Jews, on how this ministry to the Jews, God pouring out his gospel to them back uh, uh, 2,000 years ago and continually since, and they have just raised their fist against God. And the hardest thing for them to understand is grace. The hardest thing for them to understand, and to keep, keep saying it, study what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Oh, no, no, we'd, we'd much rather be religious in the worldly sense. Mercy? Well, oh, the arrogance, I don't need mercy. Are you good enough? Do you need the life that is in Christ? Do you need the enlightenment? Do you understand, when you really understand what the gospel is about, when you really understand how different it is from the rest of religion, when you really understand how much God has done to facilitate this, and yet still even Christians can't seem to see it clearly, you may find, you say, well, what's going to get me out there evangelizing? What's going to get me living the kind of Christian life I should be? Because remember, this produces righteousness. This is not just forgiveness for bad things. This produces the righteous life because you walk with God. You have his Holy Spirit. When you begin to understand what the gospel actually is, and what is done in it, and how that, yes, whoever you talk to, you are representing this because they will not be able to call upon him whom they have not believed, and they will not believe unless they hear. And if you, oh, say you went and got lessons on how to present the gospel, and so you're out there with your little tracts and handing them out, but your life is such a life that it just drowns out everything that the track says. I mean, the volume of your life, you're just such a jerk. Ever met a Christian jerk? The concern I have is that you're crossing your mind to ask the question, have I ever met a non you know, a, a, a Christian that wasn't a jerk, I mean, uh, who didn't feel free to keep certain sins in their life, didn't feel free to keep certain attitudes about others. The passage that Rod read this morning, go back and read that. How nice are you? Remember, they cannot call upon him. If they don't believe, they won't believe unless you tell them. And their faith will not be there unless the preaching of Christ occurs. And tell them clearly. And don't think that just by your life. Say you're a nice person. Some of you are pretty nice. I like you. You know, kind of cute. And you're kind of pleasant to talk to. And, 
And you like to be a silent witness. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the preaching of Christ. Don't think that just because you're nice, they're going to probably think you're a Mormon or something, and, and, and give the Mormons the credit or something. Or some decent atheist. Some good Buddhist. How are they going to know? Know the gospel. Know that they have got to declare Jesus as Lord. Know that you have to preach him raised from the dead. And they have to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And until they are ready to call upon the name of the Lord, they're not going to be saved. It's simple. It's clear. Your life has to agree. And once you start to understand how Paul views this revelation of the righteousness of God through faith, you have the inspiration necessary to speak to all men in front of you. Always looking for opportunities to bring up the gospel. Well, there's a lot more in this passage, but we're not going to cover it because we're out of time. But let's thank God. Dear Lord God, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful for your patience with us. We'd ask that we'd renew our understanding of what your gospel is and why we as Gentiles are in the kingdom. We are thankful for your Apostle Paul. We'd ask you to both greet him for us and And thank him. And thank your son for our salvation. We'd ask that we would be students of this simple message that those who are interested in eternal life and forgiveness of sins would hear your son's gospel from us. They would see your son's gospel in us. And in his name we pray. Amen.